Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, keeping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thus sends the reading of God's word. People of God, I wonder if you've ever had the experience when reading a novel or a book or in watching a movie of coming upon a moment that seems very significant, something that's said, something that you see. You, you know as you read or watch that this has meaning. In fact, you, you can even guess that the, the, the plot is being shown here, that the end is being, being hinted at, being foreshadowed, that you're expecting something to come from this, but it's too early on, and you don't know where this is leading. You don't have enough information, but you know this is meaningful. And then later, when you see the conclusion or the climax of the story, and you look back and you say, now I get it, I see it, I understand it. And back then, when it was said or what I heard or saw, now it all makes sense. It even gave the, the story away. There's a device in literature called foreshadowing that is very similar to this, that gets at this, where something that is said clues you in to something in the future. And one of my favorite novels that I, that I, if I told you it, you wouldn't even know it, so I'm not even going to tell you the title. But in the story, this group is traveling through a wilderness. It's a winter wilderness, and it looks beautiful, and one of the characters says that it, this is gorgeous. And then one of his companions says, nature is always prettiest right before it tries to kill you. Well, as you can guess, after that, a ton of animals try to kill them, the weather itself tries to kill them, and on the story goes. But you see, that statement foreshadowed what was coming. It pointed to it. Well, this psalm does that in even a clearer way. This psalm is the most quoted psalm, and I believe it's the most quoted text in the Bible itself, and particularly verse 1. So we need to realize from that, this is a significant verse. This is a significant text. This psalm is saying something that's really important. And we'll see that as we go through, because it foreshadows something. It anticipates something. See, what you see here is a conversation between two individuals, a conversation that David writes about. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And yet, verse 1 begins, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We have to unpack this. We have to do some translation work here. If you look at your Bible and you see the Lord that's capitalized, capital L-O-R-D, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The name that he gave Moses. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is the covenant name of God. Then you have the word says. The Lord says. So Yahweh says. That word 
that's translated as says is actually a very strong word. It's meaning an oracle, meaning an utterance, a divine utterance that this will take place. And then you reach to my Lord, capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d, and that's the word Adonai, or Lord. So really, this verse would be translated as Yahweh declares to my Adonai, or Yahweh declares to my Lord, sit at my right hand. See, what's going on here is David is seeing an inter-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son, and he's writing it down. For what does David say? He says, my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord. Who is above David in the Old Testament scheme, in the Old Testament order of things? No one. David had no Lord. David had no one who was above him, and yet he says in this psalm, God speaks to my Lord. So what's being declared? What's being said? Who is he speaking to? Well, this is when we get into what's called covenant theology, when you understand the promises that are given to, by God to his people and what were given to David himself. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, there's a promise given to David when God says to him, God speaking to David says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall be a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What you see is a conversation between God the Father and the coming Messiah, David's descendant, David's heir. And he calls this heir his Lord. This is really strange, especially in an ancient context. In an ancient context, the son was never greater than the father. In an ancient context, the father reigned supreme. The oldest male in the house, he was the patriarch, and everyone else honored him. Everyone else was under his authority. So for David to call one of his descendants his Lord is not normal. He's saying that this one who comes after me ranks above me, is greater than me. Now you can begin to see why this verse especially is quoted more than any other. Is given in the Old Testament. Before you see Christ, before you know his name, this heir is promised. And a conversation occurs between them. Because it so clearly points to Christ. And as the New Testament unfolds, it unpacks this verse to show just how much it's saying here. Just how much it means. In Matthew 22, and you can turn to Matthew 22, verses, verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41. Jesus quotes this psalm to make a point. He is speaking to the Pharisees. In verse 41 of Matthew 22, this is what is said. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And I want to pause there and say they clearly knew that the coming Messiah would be the son of David. They know that. They know that this coming one is from David's line. And yet Jesus has asked this question, whose son is he? He's the son of David. So then Jesus says, Jesus says to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? 
No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. In this ancient context, how can the son of David be his Lord? He has to be greater than David. Now remember, this is King David. This is the hero. This is the guy. This is the king everyone else would point to. Who is a king like David? Well, up and throughout Israel's history, no one. David was the pinnacle. Yet there's someone greater than him. Jesus shows that he's far superior to David because even though he is a descendant of David, he ranks higher. Because his kingship is an eternal one. Because his kingship is in heaven. David was on the throne in Israel, but this one who's coming is told to sit at God's right hand on the heavenly throne. And so he's superior to what David ever could be. David doesn't hold a match or a candle to this coming one who eternally reigns at God's right hand. And this particularly is talking about when Christ ascends. I want us just to capture this. I want us to see how important this is. Remember, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ has come. And it's talking about specifically when Christ ascends after fulfilling and finishing his work. Peter unpacks this in the sermon at Pentecost. Again, I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36. Acts chapter 2. And in this, we see... This psalm quoted, we actually see before what we're going to start in 29, a different psalm is quoted. And then at the end of the reading, our psalm, Psalm 110, is quoted. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Peter speaks, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised him, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. See, it wasn't exactly clear to the people of Israel that this coming Messiah would be both king, would be king and Christ. That who, who was this Messiah who was to come? They knew, no, they knew someone was to come, but they didn't know exactly what role he would fulfill. They didn't know what exactly he would be. And the New Testament's revealing to us from this psalm what that meant. What Christ was and what he was coming to do. We are supposed to take away from these words that Jesus was no mere man, but was the Lord, the Christ, which means anointed one, the Messiah. That is what Christ is. In fact, Hebrews 1 verse 13, you don't need to turn there. That verse uses this psalm to say how much superior the Lord Jesus Christ is above the angels. Hebrews 1.13 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Why does Yahweh tell the Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your, your enemies a footstool? Why does he say this? We can understand in thinking back to ancient times that sitting at your right hand was a position of honor. But for a king, it was more. If you sat at the right hand of a king, this meant, this declared even, that he possessed the authority of the king, he could act for the king, he had the king's power. He shared in the kingship. That's what this is saying. And what our reading from Acts is saying is David never got that. David was never raised to that point. But his Lord would be. This coming Lord would reign, would ascend. And that's how important ascension is. That's why we read those questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism about what Christ's ascension means. We as Christians tend to understand the importance of Christmas and Easter. We really get that. We see the importance of Christ's coming. We see the importance of his death. We see the importance of his resurrection. And then for a lot of us, it stops there. And we kind of just put all together Christ's resurrection and ascension. This is something that the New Testament doesn't do. The New Testament is very clear to separate his ascension as a monumental event, as something that was so meaningful. Why? Because if Christ had merely come and lived on this earth and died and was risen from the dead, ultimately it would have been a failed mission. Christ needed to ascend for his mission to be complete. Christ needed to be raised up to heaven, to God's right hand, for it to mean anything at all. And why is that? Why does that matter to us? The New Testament talks about what's called union with Christ. That Christ is our mediator. That Christ is our representative. What this means is that we are in Christ. And what has happened to Christ has happened to us. This is why we are forgiven of our sins, because Christ was punished. This is why we are righteous before God, because Christ's righteousness is accredited to our account, not because we did it, but because we are united to him through his spirit, and thus we are considered to be holy and perfect. And you know what? Because Christ rose and ascended and is sitting at God's right hand, so do we. That's how the ascension matters. Not that we possess the same authority as Christ. Not that it can be said in the same way of us that we sit on God's throne. But we are with Christ. We are in him. And all of that matters. All of that union with Christ means that we have experienced what Christ did. And there are numerous texts that talk about it. And this is why scripture, like Colossians 3, can say that we died with Christ and that we've even been raised with Christ. Because he is our mediator, our, what you call in, in theology, our federal head, our federal representative. He represented those who would believe in him. In Colossians 3, verse 1, in the first couple verses of Colossians 3, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it actually from the ESV. Colossians 3, verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And notice this, for you have died, 
And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, notice that phrase, when Christ, who is your life. You see how united to the Savior we are? To even be called our life, that Christ is our life. And it continues, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You exercise faith in Christ. You're exercising faith in the ascended Lord who sits at God's right hand. And that's what Colossians is saying. It's saying, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that exist where it actually says we exist. The imagery is so strong, it's saying you don't exist here on earth, you exist with Christ in heaven. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 73, and we saw the right perspective you're supposed to have, an eternal perspective of where you see your life through Christ. And that's what this is talking about. Seeing yourself in him, in heaven. So that's what this verse is saying, and Psalm 110 puts it here, and the New Testament unpacks it. Would a Jew have understood any or all of this by reading Psalm 110? No, but we now sit here and we can with the New Testament's explanation of what's going on, of what this psalm even means. And this psalm, it continues. It continues in verse 2, and it says, Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. This psalm is all about the ascended Lord and what God the Father would do for him. He would raise him up, set him on his throne, and he would extend his scepter. He would extend his rule. He would destroy his enemies. This is what the Father is doing for the Son right now. Because the psalm is speaking specifically about our day and age. After Christ has ascended, his kingdom is spreading. His rule is going forth. The first three verses of this psalm describe Christ's kingly reign, his royal authority, and how the Father is making it grow and spread. In verse 3, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. That's the church, that's us. What this is saying is this king will have an effective kingship and his people will flock to his banners. His army will be strong, will be large, and they will be of a great number. The imagery there in verse 3 that your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. This is a complicated verse in the Hebrew. It says, from the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Hebrew is very complicated, so we can't exactly know what's being referred to here. The most commentators seem to see, and I think this would make the most sense, that this is describing the increase of God's people, thus like the morning dew. How wide and vast the morning dew is from the the womb of its youth, it extends, it increases. That's a possible explanation. But what this verse is saying is that his people will flock to this king as Christ reigns as he reigns now. You might ask yourself, what does his reign mean now? What what does Christ on the throne actually do? What is he doing? He's sitting there. It says that God's extending his scepter, bringing down his enemies. What does that mean? Well, involved in the reign of Christ is the spread of his kingdom. 
And the kingdom understanding of the world is the one we as Christians need to have. And it's a lot broader than simply the church, although the church is a part of Christ's kingdom. So one of the ways in which Christ reigns now is in his church and in its spread, in the work that's doing, in the light that it is shining, in the salt that it is in the earth, Christ is reigning. You know another way Christ is reigning? By letting, the, like letting evil have its due course. What do I mean by that? I mean by turning over civilizations and people and individuals to their sin as an act of judgment. We have seen this throughout all eras of history, and we see that now. Where it seems like evil has a foothold, where it seems like evil is working its way, and it's not, it's not just pushed out of the world yet. It still exists here, but it's under Christ's control. Now we have to be careful that doesn't mean Christ is authoring evil, but he's using it in his reign. We all have seen ways in which he does that. We all have seen ways in which evil was working, and the devil was planning and doing something through it and was thwarted. And the church and God's people actually grew because of it. Another big way in which Christ rules now is what's happening right now. The proclamation of his word to his people. Have you ever thought of that? That because Christ is on the throne, we are able to hear his word proclaimed? That's an aspect of his reign and his kingdom. For every square inch of this world is his. God has put him on the throne. So the first three verses, we see the kingly reign of Christ. In verse 4, we move to what we see as the priestly reign of Christ. Verse 4 says, The Lord, or Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now this is where we're going to dig deep again. There's a lot of riches here. Melchizedek is a figure that, for many people, we say, what in the world's going on with this Melchizedek? Melchizedek was an Old Testament figure who lived during the time of Abraham. At one time in Abraham's life, his, his nephew Lot was captured by a raiding party of kings. And these kings stole Lot and stole a lot of other things and resources and people, went off, Abraham called forth his men, pursued them, destroyed the kings, took the plunder. And on their way back, he stops before this king of Salem, who's called Melchizedek, and he offers this king a tithe. And then this king blesses him. And in Genesis 14, 18, it says that then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Notice this. This Melchizedek was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. Melchizedek's name is king of righteousness. And Salem is most likely an older name for the city of Jerusalem. So what you have here is a priest king whose name is king of righteousness reigning in Jerusalem. Now that should start keying you in onto something. A priest king of God most high reigning in Jerusalem. Who, oh, by the way, is actually greater than Abraham. Who blesses Abraham. This Melchizedek is not necessary. We don't need to see Melchizedek as a pre-incarnate Christ. We can see him as an Old Testament figure who fulfilled an office that ultimately pointed to Christ. And this office was of priest-king. You know that the Levitical priesthood 
was one in which the high priest and the priest needed to be a descendant of Levi. And yet, Christ isn't. So how can he be our priest? How can he be this priest? Because his priesthood comes not from Levi, but it is one that comes in Melchizedek. And so Christ's priesthood, just as Christ's kingship was more exalted than David, Christ's king, Christ, Christ kingship was more exalted than David, Christ's priesthood is more exalted than Levi and Aaron, the high priest. How is his priesthood more exalted? What is a Melchizedekian priesthood? Well, a Melchizedekian priesthood is one of direct appointment by God. Melchizedek didn't descend from anyone. That's not how he was a priest. Melchizedek didn't just take this for himself. He was appointed to that by God. And it's called an eternal priesthood. It's called an eternal priesthood, not because Melchizedek lived forever, but the Bible records no death of Melchizedek, no descendants of Melchizedek. See, the Bible is using this figure to show that this kingly priesthood from Jerusalem was an eternal one. Now, everything I'm saying here comes out in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 through 10. And I know we're, we're reading a lot. We're going through a lot of text. But it's necessary to understand the depth of this psalm. It's the most quoted psalm. So we're required to go to these other places to see what's being said here. So in Hebrews 7, verses 4 through 10, it says about Melchizedek, Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, that's Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Notice this. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. What is this saying? This is saying that all the descendants of Abraham paid a tenth to Melchizedek through Abraham himself. It's saying that this Melchizedek was a priest king of the highest order, and one that wasn't taken up again until Christ came on the scene. That's what this is saying. For this psalm to say that this king would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is to apply to him the highest royal title of divine king and the highest priestly position of Melchizedek. See the depth of this psalm. See what it points to in Christ. That the coming Lord would be a Lord that not, as, not only is greater than David, but is greater than the high priest Aaron. Now we come to the conclusion of the psalm. The following verses. Verse 5 says, so I should give the structure. So we saw in verses 1 through 3 the kingly reign of Christ. In verse 4 we saw the priestly reign of Christ. And in the next verses to the end of the psalm, we see the judicial reign of Christ. Verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. This is talking about the victory of the coming king, the judgment that he would bring forth. This gets into a lot of rich imagery. This is a victory that will reach its fulfillment when Christ comes again, but it's a victory that's happening even now. 
The victory is being gained, it's going forth, it's spreading across the earth and will reach its fulfillment when he comes again. Verse 7 is another verse that is difficult to interpret. What's this business about him stopping along the way for a drink? Again, we can't speak with certainty, but this seems to be describing the relentlessness of this king's pursuit, the relentlessness of this king's judgment, that as he pursues, he will not even take a break. He will drink along the streams as he's going and pursuing his enemies. That's a possible explanation of this. But his judgment will be fierce. And so these verses show that the reign of Christ will result in the destruction and judgment of his enemies. All right, there we go. We just went through the whole psalm. We just read all of these verses, but now what? So what, right? Everyone's probably saying, get to the application. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? Well, I have four applications. First, we need to take from this psalm that Christ wins. Now we're all probably thinking, okay, yeah, we already knew that. Way to come to church and hear that. I could have just stayed at home, right? Christ wins. Now why is that important? Remember the context of this psalm. David wrote this to what we might consider was podunk Israel on the crossroads of mighty empires who could seemingly snap out Israel like that. And this psalm makes the bold pronunciation, the bold proclamation that a descendant of David would reign on God's throne and destroy all of his enemies. That's boldness. It's exactly what happened. Now you can imagine Israel trying to cling to this truth when their nation is ripped apart and exiled. And there is no King David. There is no descendant of David on the throne. And you would say, how can this psalm actually be true? How can this come about? And yet it does. So the fact that Christ wins is a strong application. It's one that we need to trust in today. Because we need to trust also that no nation, no devil, no worldly power, no spiritual power will take Jesus off the throne. We've won. That's what the psalm is saying. We've won. All that's awaiting is for his final coming. It's assured. Who can take a, th- who can take a king off of God's throne? No one can. So we must also trust that. Second. We need to remember that Christ's life was no failure. There are many Christians today who feel and think that Christ came to Israel and yet Israel rejected him and something kind of went wrong. And we need to pause Israel's history. Christ decided to set up the church. He's going to bring the church. The church is going to rise to heaven one day in rapture. He's going to come back down. He's going to reign for a thousand year literal reign in Israel and bring Israel back. That's what many Christians believe. Yet we know that that's not the case. Why do we know that's not the case? Because Christ is reigning already. He's already on the throne. He's not going to descend from a heavenly throne to take up an earthly throne to have the church be divided from Israel. And so we take from this that Christ's mission was successful. 
Exactly what he wanted to happen, happened. Third, we need to understand that it's Christ who reigns. What I mean by that is we can become so fixed on our ministries, on the witnessing that we need to do, or even on the supposed failure of the church and think something's going wrong. To think that, or to think we're so integral to the part to God's plan that if something happens to us, or that if we can't do our work in the church, it won't spread. Or if we don't do the right work as an elder, or if we don't do the right work as a deacon, or if we don't do the right work as missionaries and to our neighbors, that the church isn't going to spread. Now, that's not to say we don't do our best work. We do. But what this is saying is that it's Christ who reigns. It's He who is above the church and the kingdom, not us. We are his subjects, and Christ will reign and do and bring about his redemption plan. And lastly, the last application is that this psalm should cause us to be in awe and praise our God. When Christ descends, as the last few verses of this psalm talks about in judgment, he's not descending as a frail baby who came in humility to die for sin. He's descending as an anointed priest king who's coming in wrath. That's what's going to happen. The time of his coming in humility happened already. Christ is going to come in judgment. He's going to come to destroy his enemies. That's all that's left. That's all we wait for. And that as we confess, that gives us hope. Hope that our labor is not in vain. Hope that we will be brought to him where we truly belong. And hope and knowledge that the wicked will not win out. Satan will not succeed. Because David's Lord is on the throne. That's our hope. That's what this psalm says, and the richness of it. And so as we go out from here, trust in that. May this cause us to worship and obey him, and may it cause us to repent and believe before it's too late. We need to trust in David's Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in awe of what we see in your word. We see in this no man, no mere man was, would have been able to write Psalm 110 without your spirit, without the knowledge that you put forth. For it not only predicts, but it describes exactly what has happened in Christ. And we pray that we would trust that. We pray that we would trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ, who exercises authority from the throne. And we pray that we would live in submission to the Father who is extending your rule over the earth. We pray that we would be your soldiers, ready and prepared for battle, ready to do what you would call us to do, ready to give our lives for this kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.